Welcome to Kids Issue Stanford. This is Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino. Joined today by Edward Miller of the Henry George School of Chicago. We discuss current and historical issues of economics, city planning, and more. Today we're talking macroeconomics. We talk about the Fed chair. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Ed. Hello. So, yeah, today uh, we are recording this on, this is Saturday the 20th of October. By the time this airs, uh, less than a week, I believe uh, we'll actually have the appointment announced for what the new Fed chief will be. So, uh, you'll know something that we don't at the time of recording. Uh, it sounds like at the moment uh, there's a leading candidate, Jay Powell. Uh, there's a possibility Janet Yellen will be kept. Uh, for a while, there's a lot of chatter uh, about uh, uh, Taylor, John Taylor. Uh, a famous face here at Stanford University, possible Nobel laureate uh, in the future, who knows. Uh, and some people were having a lot of blowback, saying uh, John Taylor's had some pretty uh, dangerous ideas in the last 10 years, and he would not be a very good face for the Fed. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, Ed uh, sent me uh, a link to kind of talk about uh, Taylor and his work in relation to the policy ineffectiveness proposition. So uh, I guess and that's that's the first place we started talking about it. Why don't you say, uh, yeah, so w- w- why do you think uh, people should you know, know about and care about the policy ineffectiveness proposition, and what would you say it is in, in language that, for someone who hasn't heard of it? <laughs> uh, well, so the general assumption, you know, in uh, mainstream circles, going back to the creation of the Federal Reserve System, is that monetary policy can and should be used to manage the economy, particularly for counter-cyclical policy. You know, the, the Great Depression and all of the prior preceding depressions uh, have really kind of made people nervous. Obviously, the, the Fed was created before the the Great Depression, but, you know, it, it only became seen as more important after the Great Depression, where, you know, people want to, to put an end to these, to these cyclical bubble uh, uh, economy, and it, it's generally just assumed that you can do that with monetary policy by, by trying to set interest rates and trying to, you know, um, manage the the monetary side of the equation. So, so I guess yeah. To compare it to at the time of the Great Depression, a lot of people felt, oh, look at the you know economic models. The best thing to do is to just kind of you know fight through this. We're going to see the economy contract. It means that it was overexpanded, and this is a good thing. And this was kind of related to ideas of of sound finance. Of yeah, it's you you just have to kind of let it self correct. And, you know, there's a certain uh, assumption of, of rationality in this, of saying, okay, yeah. things were irrational, now it's going to get rational, but I guess, uh, and this is, you know, kind of the Keynesian revolution, uh, you know, Keynes would say, no, it isn't really rational, people are actually irrationally scared, and we're seeing a contraction 
of of the effect of money supply, uh, and this you know kind of right. agrees with how monetarists would look at it too, saying there was an effective shrinking of the monetary supply during the uh, Great Depression. Uh, either you can look at it from a fiscal sense or monetary sense, but it's not really a good thing to ever let yourself fall into a deflationary spiral. And uh, and. Yeah. And and everyone kind of agrees. Yes, it is the role of the people who supply the money to avoid a cyclical, uh, you know, uh, spiral. But I, I guess uh, so. The but this happened. The policy ineffectiveness proposition was was brought up years later, and uh, so and it's still to yes. to a degree controversial. Sort of, sort of a- well, sort of a, a, a cutting against the grain. And actually, I think if you take like very standard classical liberal positions on things. The policy ineffectiveness proposition, I mean, I, I, it seems irrefutable. You know, if you're just like a standard kind of, so like, I don't know if you know about the Cartesian view of man, right? The, the, the classical liberal uh, sort of like everybody is uh, rational and all that. If, if you just and if you have all the simplifying assumptions, you know, like perfect markets and all this stuff, the more, the, you know, once you create an economic model like that, like it just becomes untenable to believe that you can use monetary policy uh, to, to change output levels, to change growth, because ultimately all of the interest rates and stuff are embedded into the expectations of every single contract in society. So how can you possibly think that, you know, you're going to, you're going to affect things if like they're all, they're taking it into account as fast as you can change it. But, um, but the, the argument against that, which was posited by, um, Phelps and, Taylor and um, and Stan Fisher. What was that? People are indeed locked into contracts for you know a year uh, uh, very frequently, uh, and that this gives um, uh, bureaucrats ample time to you know make real impacts on the economy. Well, one thing that I think this is a a text that came out in the early seventies, which I think is an interesting. Uh, uh, text by uh, the economist Abel Lerner, he was uh, saying like, you know, two different ways inflation could happen. The classic way people say inflation could happen uh, is when demand strip outstrips supply. And in that case, there's just irrationality or it could just be, in, you know, they're kind of making up for uh, something that is artificial, such as rations. Uh, and he calls that inflation one. And people say, like, when you think of inflation, you tend to think, but and he compares that against, uh, yeah, he compares that against uh, inflation two, which is uh, administered inflation, which has to do a lot with stickiness of saying there isn't really in the actual economy uh, a really you know fluid you know market of buyers and sellers of work. Instead, there are you know people in contracts. There are in fact you know unions. Add extra stickiness because people have, you know, very kind of rigid negotiating schedules. If you kind of compare the world of, you know, a heavily unionized industry versus a much more fluid industry, like let's say people who do the gig economy, that's probably the most fluid industry out there. Wages are much more likely to, you know, move up and down in one rather than the other. Uh, right. 
Yeah, and I and the the final thing he kind of says is there's two ways to look at it. One is saying that inflation is inevitable because the administered infl- inflation, which is both, you know, kind of the buyers and sellers, they're going to ratchet it up based on the fact that they each want more than they really should. There's kind of a, an aggressiveness. And he says if, you know, if that's the case, you know, we're kind of screwed. He says inflation 3 is more uh is is what his indication of what was happening in the 70s, which is defensive inflation. And I guess this is really what's happening in Weimar Germany. People just don't want, you know, to get really, uh, you know, bowled over by inflation making all this stuff worthless. So people tend to be on the defensive and try to say, okay, I need a raise because money's getting cheaper every year. Uh, I need to kind of just, you need to give us an raise or we're going to get poorer. And I think when you have that... These are... Yeah. You have a you have a spiral yeah. in a different sense. Well, these are these are all really interesting um, definitions. I, I didn't know those those three uh, definitions of inflation, but what I do what I do like is in general that before you embark on you know aimless pontification about broad economic stuff, at least define your terms really really well and. Don't be like, don't, and, and so like, I just, I, I just have this very vivid memory just now of like a, a Keynesian gentleman who like became so flustered and upset that I asked him to, to define what interest was and what he was meaning by that. There's 20 because, different ways you know, it can mean, yeah. <laughs> so like, I mean, he, he thought, he thought like it was like important to make a big huff about it and make, and make it like I was being stupid for asking what he meant by inflation or by interest. And it's like, well, if, you know, if you're talking about interest, you're talking about inflation, what, what are you really talking about? And that's like just basic step one. And so with inflation, uh, a very good sort of definition separation that I like is uh, basically that you can, def- you can separate out price inflation and monetary inflation. And once you do that, it becomes clear that, uh, the two aren't necessarily interlinked. So one of the one of the obvious ways, uh, you know, just just thinking rationally, um, if you have a growing economy, you have a, a, an increasing population. Uh, in order to have price stability, you would actually need monetary expansion just to just to have price stability. And under a you know a modern monetary system, under a, a fractional reserve fiat you know system, uh, the mo- monetary supply will just sort of naturally increase to meet the demand uh, in some level. So so you know technically the monetary authorities um, you know don't need to do any. Um, specific uh, pro- uh, policies in order for that that expansion and the monetary supply to happen. So, so that is sort of built into how everything works. But at the same time, you can have price inflation, right? And and you can have price deflation, and you could have all of these things actually occurring simultaneously. And and when people kind of it's just it's just a very complicated like um with regard to technology 
you know, we see rapid price deflation just based on pure productive efficiency of, of uh, you know, every year a computer, you know, can be faster and cheaper and, you know, more energy efficient. So, so, so this is sort of a, a sort of a variance on price uh, and price inflation or deflation because pr- uh, clearly production methods are are intimately tied in with it, and so is fiscal policy. You know, if you have really strong, you know, taxes, really heavy-handed taxes with strong with a lot of deadweight loss, you could have price inflation. You know, that's just that's just you know uh, another way of kind of measuring the deadweight loss. Yeah, I mean, inflation is one of those things that people tend to think is just, oh, inflation's inflation. That's very simple. It's actually a very kind of fuzzy concept that I think when you kind of assume it's simple, things tend to work better. When you have inflation targets, at least it's, you know, you could say there's a lot of weird decisions that go into it. But I guess it tends to work on doing the main thing that's important, which is giving us, one, expectations of stable prices in everything, which is the important thing. You want to make sure if something doesn't really change in production and become more efficient or inefficient, the price should be pretty stable. It's bad when it isn't. Uh, And second is, yeah, it just helps us kind of plan the future and trust that the currency is going to be worth about the same uh, you know, over a, a time frame, which is really what the role of Fed effectively is. Yeah, yeah, and 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 certainly simplifying it or using one sort of definition over another uh, can make sense in certain circumstances. And um, it's just the, the the problem comes when you know you just start mixing and matching these definitions and. Or, or just fundamentally misunderstanding what's even happening, and and with regards to the Federal Reserve in particular, I think just people don't people don't really get it at all. Like to this day, um, people are under the illusion that quantitative easing was money printing, and that you know this was devaluing the currency or something like that, and the the dollar is on its way out, and we should all buy gold or Bitcoin because. Uh, you know, everything, the sky is falling, something, something. But, you know, if you, if you, if you like understand basic concepts, you under, you'll know that like the, the dollar was very, was, was quite strong throughout even the, the great recession of 2007 and, and afterwards. And uh, all the people who thought that quantitative easing was printing and were, were trying to bet against the dollar were losing money that that entire time and and so that that's what happened to peter thiel he he based on ideological reasons thought that the u.s dollar was going to going to collapse in that time people have been predicting it for the last 10 years and yeah it's every time they predict it they've been wrong right and and but that that just goes back to the fundamental misunderstanding of what it was that they were calling inflation so they they defined inflation in very silly ways but even if but and they also misunderstood what even was happening with quantitative easing so it wasn't even expanding the monetary supply yeah well 
I mean, interesting role of say, like, what is the job of you know the Fed and how do they do it? And I think there is a very different kind of idea between how Janet Yellen has been running the Fed and how John Taylor has been saying the Fed should be run. Uh, you know, John Taylor has been saying the Fed should follow the quote unquote Taylor rule, which has become a very famous thing of saying there are automated ways the Fed should respond and let you know how they should you know, increase and decrease their, you know, levels of, of lending to different commercial, uh, you know, banks and so on. Uh, and according to this, he says, well, the Taylor rule in the last 10 years, it should have stopped having 0% interest back in 2010. It should have right. raised it to 4% by 2012. And I mean, yeah. you look at how it went, it it's tough to say that what we needed was a restriction on monetary flow in the last ten years based upon on the on the other hand on the other hand we do seem to be in a very strong stock bubble right now in the tech sector yeah and uh, you know I so right now we actually are not seeing the land bubble uh, I mean there's you know obviously been some some land gains but well, I think it's, primarily it's... speaking. I mean, I think the the one thing to say, it's not all land. I mean, you look at a place like Cleveland right. versus a place like the Bay Area, there are very different yeah. ideas of what a bubble may be. I think you look at like, the, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's localized in some places. But, you know, the, 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 the fact I think is right now that we are, in, I think we are in a stock bubble. I think there's no question. I mean, you look historically, uh, Schiller was just uh, talking about this, how, you know, measuring the kind of uh, the, the price-to-earnings ratios uh, versus the stock uh, prices and all that. And, and you know, uh, it, it, it's right now almost as high as some of the key, you know, uh, peaks of, of, of recent memory, you know. Yeah. So, so certainly 2007 and the dot-com bubble, you know, you could measure with the same metrics you know, the PE ratios and come up with uh, like the conclusion that right now we are we are near the, near a peak in, in a stock bubble right now. So. Yeah. Well, I think if you go back, it's, it, it speaks to how difficult it is to say what is effective and not effective when you look at, you know, all the different parts of the economy. I mean, compared to the automated, uh, I guess, metrics of, of John Taylor, I think, you know, Janet Yellen has been, I think, trying to implement the quote-unquote dual mandate of the Fed, which is, one, to make employment as full as possible, uh, given the fact that there's going to be some non-cyclical you know, contributions, but you want to get rid of cyclical unemployment as much as possible while keeping inflation uh, you know, from running away. And you know, the Fed has been setting a 2% inflation target, which they've been falling short of that, which says, I mean, they're not going over, over what it is. Uh, and I think the way she does it is largely not just automated rules, but a lot about the... Uh, I think the human factor, I mean, there is, there is, you know, she can make a statement and the subtlety in a word she said can really speak to how much the market can feel confident or be spooked. And I think, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of kabuki kind of like, it's, it's weird. It's like a whole dance well, and, and, and acting. And that really is how the Fed kind of makes sure to keep the market nice and calm. So Keynes, uh, his his general 
concept or contribution or whatever. It, you know, in, in retrospect, I guess seems obvious or whatever, but uh, certainly, um, cer- certainly he, he had a core point of his criticisms of the of the neoclassicals, and and that seems to be that they were not taking into consideration time in their models. And when you factor that into rational expectation, you realize that people are factoring in the future into uh, their expectations. And this creates like a feedback loop where, right, if, if you expect things will get better, then that very expectation itself kind of raises the, the prices and makes a, a further appearance that things are getting better. Uh, but and the reverse being true as well. However, um, with um, with a, a more recent uh, example, I heard um, uh, there there, w- there was a, a gentleman uh, who came up with a, a theory just now that um, the cyclical uh, market is uh, deter- is kind of following a natural selection process. So the way the way he argued it was that, in particular, the individuals who are rewarded or penalized during certain periods in the market have certain characteristics and risk tolerances and enthusiasms. And uh, during like a, a particular bubble, right, like a a uh, stock bubble, a tech bubble, a land bubble, you know, people who for whatever irrational reasons, have like a, a very strong sort of optimism and and uh, and risk loving uh, uh, capacity, they are rewarded handsomely by the market, and this increases their con- control of the resources during that time period. So you have an increasing percentage of control of resources by people who happen to <laughs> cycle. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a facet of like the survivorship bias. You know, you see the people who made yeah. it through, and you say, "Oh, they had the right ideas." It could just be the fact that everyone who had equally bad ideas all all perished, but they're the ones that came ahead. Right, and it doesn't mean that the people who survived were had better ideas. It's just that they randomly were right at that time. You know. Yeah. So, so I mean, I would say, like, you know, to talk about the big thing here, and I'd say, like, really, of all things that really make me scared, I mean, outside of, uh, you know, North Korea and the nuclear trigger and, you know, just irrational actors, I am just as scared of the fact that, you know, Donald Trump is effectively behind who's going to control the U.S. monetary supply, which is if, you know— insofar as you need kind of adults who introduce like real stable you know behavior if he was to put some like reality star on it you know if you put like jim cramer or something as the fed i mean if the markets were to panic holy god you know that would be possibly the very worst Uh, thing he could do so so so, uh I, i i fundamentally agree with this so um the but uh so my my original worries with Donald Trump, um, you know, were uh, one one of the big ones was Supreme Court justices, and yeah, Fed chief was another big one. Uh, apparently, you know, if uh, I, I got actually quite relieved when the Supreme Court justice nominee was, you know, Mr. Oxford guy Gorsuch, and uh, <laughs> Gorsuch, and like when the uh, when the Fed chief was John B. Taylor or or, or 
Yellen or whoever else he's considering. Jay Powell. Like these names. Yeah. These names are like clearly like eminent, you know, highly mainstream people that you're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. So. I mean, you say, yeah, Gorsuch, I have my objections to him. Uh, someone like John Taylor, who, I mean, or Jay Powell, but I have my objections to people like John Taylor, but at least they're adults who. You know, are not. I mean, if you put like Anthony Scaramucci on the Supreme Court, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, just imagine, just imagine. I mean, it's well, it, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing, right? So, so Trump, uh, you know, uh, it, for whatever reason, like in theory, like in, in in all of like the peripheral, unimportant roles, like press secretary or whatever, he seems to be nominating lunatics. But then, for like whatever reason, I don't know what it is. Like the actual, like most critical ones haven't really been been lunatics in the same way and, and so that's that's a real saving grace um, yeah but you know one one of the one of the most uh worrisome moments with the monetary policy for trump was uh there was a report that uh in the middle of the night he called michael flynn to ask him whether we, sh- we should have a strong dollar or a weak dollar which, I mean, regardless of his, um, you know, uh, ignorance or, or whatever on, on monetary policy, it's, it's okay if you're admitting ignorance and you want to reach out to people. But his, his first instinct of reaching out on monetary policy was to a psychopathic general. Like, that's like. Yeah, <laughs> there's no reason to believe he knows anything about economics, right. but like, why would he be your first? Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, and I would say this. I mean, I I have my objections to. I think maybe you could say the automated principles of John Taylor. I mean, we talk about more about other objections, but there is a certain logic to it of saying it minimizes right. how bad it can be. The Taylor rule, right? And and Milton uh, um, Friedman had a real similar kind of argument where he, he he thought you could literally automate the the Fed. Um, you know, as like a next best option to to abolishing it. Yeah, Milton which, Friedman. He uh, believed monetary, you know, uh, monetary uh, policy was very powerful. He thought it was too powerful. He thought it was too powerful for people to control, and yeah. it really should be and, just. And, and, and I and I think he he kind of understood that actually it worked more or less the way they were doing it. I think he was just worried in their ability to continue executing it competently. Yeah. Um, but he, he he I think uh, he also fundamentally was basing a lot of his logic on what amounts to the policy and effectiveness proposition and and you know he was he had an overestimation of you know this perfect market and perfect rationality sort of model which you know it, it you know it works really well when you're when you're just trying to make theoretical points and isolate variables but you know you can't mistake that for what reality is and but to go back, you know, go back even further, like you know, you say the policy and effectiveness, you know, uh, proposition. You talk about something saying that everything is self-regulating. Like you know, look at Say's law. That Say's law, you know, you put on the face of it, supply equals demand. Therefore, you should always have full employment. By definition, employment should always reach one hundred percent because supply equals demand. The supply of labor equals the demand of labor. But you know, you see that there has been many times where employment is not 100 percent so uh and i've I've heard people say that's the role of the fed is to make say's law 
true in practice, even though it isn't really true in practice? Well, it's like, uh, yeah, well, it's sort of like also one of these definitional things because, um, you know, like what is demand in economics? It is people with uh, a willingness to pay who, who want something, not just anyone who wants something. So if you, if, you know, if you want the cure to immortality or the, or the, 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 the not the cure, the uh, ability to have immortality, you know, and you're, you know, you, you have no money and it's impossible to produce. Well, okay. <laughs> like you have no money and it doesn't exist. It's like two levels of like, uh, reasons why this is a, a not something that can be included in in a demand model. <laughs> right. But, uh, so, so things that don't exist and people who have no resources uh, just aren't included. But in fact, not having resources is like the is like part of the social problem that we're trying to solve here. So, so in effect, Say's law is maybe true in that in the, in the sense that yeah, you know, demand is only economically relevant if it's actionable. You know, people with resources willing to buy actual goods that people are willing to provide at that particular price, right? But but that's not that's 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 still like okay, well it's we assuming still want every person to have jobs and, yeah. and I don't care if nobody's willing to buy their labor at that price or whatever. It's just it, we we want to make an economy where where that price is achievable by this particular laborer, right? Yeah, it assumes everyone's living the life they want to live, which is not really true in that sense, or is living, you know, if they had more resources, they would be just as rational, and uh, it, that it tends not to really... Uh, well, it, it's just it's just these, these, these weasel definitions, you know, yeah. where people just have, have or, or, they're, or like an ambiguous or, or sort of, what do you call it, where uh, the... There's a lot of these uh, sort of dual definitions. I heard it once referred to as the Martin Bailey fallacy. Oh yeah, you know uh, where you have a, like Scott you have a really strong, yeah, you have a really strong like uh, uh, definition that's like really ironclad, and then a really fuzzy like like maybe kind of cloak and dagger definition that you're trying to slip under. Well, you can look at the uh, fact like people time. might say like you know capitalism is, you know, capitalism has failed. And you're talking about, well, by capitalism, I mean the entire structure of, you know, rent-seeking behavior and kind of, you know, immoral practices by everything in the economy has failed. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, sure, I agree with that. And you say, like, okay, so, you know, we all agree capitalism has failed. We shouldn't have the price system. We should, you know. <laughs> it's like that's, a, that's like, a, yeah, completely uh, sort of a leap. And, and, and this is a similar problem, yeah, so... So, so uh, with supply and demand, those words can mean, you know, one thing to one person. But, you know, it just sounds like demand, like demand in a colloquial sense versus demand in an economic sense. You yeah. Know, you just, yeah. So, so let's spend a minute or two more talking about, you know, reasons that John Taylor is concerning. And then I think we'll kind of transition to talking more about inflation in a, a general sense. I think it's a really, you know, interesting th- to dive into and uh, some some kind of questions of how the economy is is functioning that aren't really asked enough. Uh, so I, I think one thing I was like reading, John Taylor, he does sound like a lot of kind of just very dogmatic uh, kind of, uh, I guess, GOP line of say like, he has he's put out like things saying you look at this correlation between economic freedom uh, and the productivity of the market, and it shows that we need to make the economy more free, 
which is you know one of those things like sure it's definitions like free who who doesn't like free but free tends to mean less regulations at all costs yeah you have nothing to lose but your chain. Yeah. I mean, but in economic freedom, in like the Heritage Foundation sense, I'm sure they would have said that Annabelle himself was very free because you had complete uh, property rights. You know, it's kind of you it's it can mean whatever you want it to mean. It means it every regulation by definition is bad. Every property. Well, you, know, right. you know, the, the you know how the term the dismal science came applied to economics. Yeah. Well, when, when did that come from? I'm not sure I know. Uh, Thomas Carlyle had a had a racist tract called "The Occasional Discourses on the Negro Question," and he uh, he he believed very strongly that the classical liberal economists like John Stuart Mill, in particular, who, who were all like on the abolitionist sort of movement, and uh, that something about economics was very dismal because it posited sort of a, 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 an unnatural human freedom that went against God and nature. Wow. <laughs> you know, something like that. It's, it's really sad so having he, a Carlisle Renaissance, <laughs> like some parts of the internet. Specifically dismal to him because it meant there would be no slavery. Yeah. So that was, that, that was the dismal part. And, and that reminds me of like the sort of the, the terms, you know, being, you know, what, what it, what people perceive as one way or another it's it's you know okay uh capitalism has failed capitalism is dismal capitalism is this or that well you know you can you can have the complete opposite <laughs> reason for thinking that it's dismal and then left-wing people might even use that term later without even knowing <laughs> where it comes from you know yeah so well, so so I guess more about yeah I guess the right wingingness of of John Taylor he has said you know the government should be balanced there should be no deficits at any point which tends to be you know notes of austerity in certain I mean I I, I think I, I I'm certainly skeptical when people uh you know have a very kind of dogmatic austerity with a certain regressive you know regressiveness uh, put into it uh, he's he's called for a flat tax. Uh, with only like labor credits up to eight thousand dollars in wages, which is like wow, all those people making less than eight thousand dollars. It's like wow, that's crazy. Uh, I mean, so I think that's the kind of thing. Like, so he does sound, uh, yeah, I was certainly pretty regressive. Like in that, yeah, like an ideologue, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and certainly like yeah, anytime anyone quotes the Freedom House or whatever on on a stat, you know, you you, you would want to look at that in a skeptical manner. Uh, but interestingly, like a lot of these other indexes, are not uh, are not any better. <laughs> the consumer price index, the the development index, the whatever you know, whatever kind of index you want to talk about, they all tend to have this uh, sort of falseness uh, and, and poor assumptions built into them. Yeah. And so perhaps perhaps it's just more obvious when the values are not your own, <laughs> right? Uh, but perhaps other, you know, I, I feel like certainly these happiness indices uh, are, are flagrantly biased or, or poor, have a lot of poor assumptions in them. It's impossible uh, to be truly yeah. objective, certainly. I mean, everyone, if you make any kind of measurement, you're you're introducing your own biases into that, even when people may not even be intending it, but certainly a lot of people do intend yeah, well, well, like, so for, for instance, um, you know, 
it's just very hard to 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 make any uh, objective like numerical kind of citations of why one policy in one country makes it better than another policy in another country like uh you know okay france or the uk or someone has a better healthcare system than the united states it's like how would you go about proving that <laughs> that it's like well first of all you're talking about like two completely different countries with two completely different sets of every other policy and the demographics are different and the history is different and the geography is different you know the political system could be different so i mean you you're you're talking about you know uh comp- almost you know like apples and apples and oranges like is like kind of a uh sort of an understatement in, in some respects and then you know you're trying to then proceed to make sweeping claims about you know how we should run our our system or whatever but then um you know then you look at other things like i don't know the happiness index and like the US shows up as above the UK and France on the happiness index so why could that be is it because we have a better healthcare system you know or, you know or is it because like of some completely other thing like it doesn't there's no there's you know you could cite one stat i could cite another stat that makes the US seem favorable or unfavorable yeah, and I saw, ultimately, I saw, you have proved nothing. Yeah, I saw one stat. It was like just like it was some sort of economic freedom, and like it had like three three factors. One of them was whether or cigarette taxes, which is like if that's really one of your top three things, it's just really. I mean, it, it it's it's all about marketing the end product and not really and knowing that people really won't go into the process along the lines. Which, which on that, okay, let's talk about inflation. Uh, I was talking with you know some some friends and colleagues uh, who were you know I, I think puzzled, especially if you're kind of more of a traditional thinker. It's very puzzling to say the monetary supply has been growing and growing and growing very steadily, and yet wages are flat. Uh, there's still unemployment, and we have not seen. We have not seen inflation, which they have expected. And you know, you were saying earlier, people like Peter Thiel have, you know, lost a lot of you know faith, certainly in predictions that inflation is around the corner. When even though the monetary supply has been increasing, it hasn't. And I guess question one is, how are people explaining this? How are people explaining the fact that, uh, you know, the traditional ideas of inflation? haven't been coming around do you have, do you have like what, what what's your first i guess reaction to the idea why well so, so so i mean i i i think personally speaking like uh that there are some some clear clear indications that um at least part of of the the the, the sort of policy and effectiveness kind of notion or whatever is is is, is more like that that real production uh, follows real incentives from real human beings making re- you know rational choices on their own and when you have that as a sort of like your primary concern even if you don't fully buy into it you know you you I think you immediately note, note that fiscal policy matters much more than monetary policy and uh, so cer- certainly all the tax cut rhetoric right now, even an expectation of a tax cut, you know, will matter perhaps a lot more than the expectation of a, a Fed funds rate increase or something. Um, so, so these, you know, so the fact that the Fed is actually 
talking about slowly raising rates and has been slowly, you know, starting that process. Um, you know, we're we're in still a really like record-breaking stock market right now, and um, all indicators of a, of a strong bubble. Uh, they were talking about, you know, even if the tax cut doesn't pass uh, or before it passes, that we'll reach the three percent target for growth that Trump wanted. Which, um, you know, I mean, and, and you could maybe even say that the expectation of the tax cut might be partly. To, to credit with that, well, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing you're saying is, you know, uh, you know, equities. If there's an equity bubble, equities aren't really, yeah, aren't, equities aren't part of what "quote unquote" inflation is. Inflation it tends to mean, you know, CPI levels, consumer price yeah. index, which is a basket right. of goods. And, and right, so we have Amazon uh, raking in dough, and they're they're and they 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 went up thirteen percent, uh, I believe, last Friday, right? Uh, but but or yesterday, I guess. <laughs> but they 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 um you know they're lowering prices, uh, uh, presumably. Or, I mean, they they seem to have uh, been you know increasing efficiency in the real production and real distribution of of goods, and therefore you know. Uh, it doesn't feel like prices are rising, despite that they are, uh, they, they, you know, they are raking in so much money. And it's, uh, you know, it does sort of seem like the Phillips curve concept is sort of uh, not really happening right now. Like you don't really see the inflation, but you have like very close to full employment, which, you know, the, you know that that seems to contradict uh, the the typical Keynesian types of views where you can't have full employment and no inflation. It seems certainly know. the Phillips curve assumptions, it, it doesn't seem like it has every aspect of the economy. I mean, you talk about like a basket of goods, you talk about a person living their life and how much they have to pay for stuff. What does that include? What doesn't it include? It says, okay, it talks about, you know, all the food you're using, all like the lumber you're going to buy, all the, you know, you know, products for your house. Like it's, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You talk about like, yeah, it's, you know, uh, alternate measures like the Big Mac index, how much does the Big Mac cost? Uh, but what doesn't it include? It does not include really every aspect of rising housing costs in, in different locationally specific parts of the country. It doesn't include, you know, the soaring costs of healthcare. It doesn't include the soaring costs of, of, of education. And if you talk about like right. what is making life more expensive for people or what isn't making it cheaper, those things. All the things that aren't in the CPI. Yeah. yeah. It, it is It is kind of a joke, but they, and, and I think they do include some electronics, you know, which is clearly one of the most rapidly deflationary uh, parts of the economy. So, so it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it gets very, very like subjective and confusing and almost like fundamentally impossible. It's almost sort of like arrows theorem for, <laughs> for democracy, you know, with like, I'm not sure you could come up with like an objective sort of number in the same way that, so arrows, you know, theorem is that democracy sort of, you can't come up with a voting algorithm that truly can perfectly project the the values of a population of people and and to you know rank the priorities of candidates like you just can't you can't do that mathematically and not come up with like very contradictory kind of silly scenarios where you know if everybody's first choice dropped out 
the, 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 the second choice would would make would become the, the, the first choice, like those sort of basic. Yeah, it also implies everything can be gamed to a certain degree. And I think... In... Right, and, but I think it's the same like with, with inflation. It's sort of like trying to distill the total subjective values of a population into a number, Yeah, which is, is, it's the same concept as voting. It's sort of like you just mathematically speaking, when you have such heterogeneous, types of views and such a, a, a multiplicity of options, you know, how can you reduce all that down to a number, uh, you know, without, you know, being really like broad brush strokes, glossing over huge portions of human sort of individuality and, 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 and uh, the differentiation in the market. So, so, so like, I think, I think, I think what you were talking about, about breaking it down saying, look, this land and this healthcare and this education stuff is very serious. These are three um, serious areas of rising costs that need to be addressed, irrespective of what the inflation number is or is not. Yeah, I mean, so here is I think an interesting kind of you know uh, opinion. You know, I don't really hear much. Uh, this is something uh, Mason Gaffney wrote. Uh, back in 2005, it's an interesting article kind of questioning a lot of the gameability of inflation metrics. And he kind of posits that a lot of, you know, figures behind the CPI have a vested interest to keep inflation numbers looking artificially low. Why would that be the case? And he says largely because it's regressive. It helps the, the haves at the expense of the have-nots. It, you know, one, it masks why wages are falling in real terms. If you say, hey, you know what, things aren't more expensive, you know, your wages are high enough, it makes it very easy to uh, look at what's keeping wages down. Um, and it tends to look at ways that real wealth kind of flows uphill to the haves when you keep inflation down. Uh, if you look at things like housing, for instance, housing was kind of taken off in 83 that's a very political move, but they, you know, uh, they replace it with imputed rents, which tend to really understate. If you ask someone in the Bay Area, how much would your place rent for? They're probably not going to mention what it really rents for because they have they're not in the market. So it makes sense. Uh, so like, uh, yeah, the imputed rent, like so, so it, it very, very, very is uh, like, like the like the policy and effectiveness we were talking about uh, where, you know, if you consider that people are locked in the contracts, you can definitely see uh, them uh, making windfalls on, uh, as you know, like, you know, meager individuals. So like if you are locked into a rent contract and the rents are, you know, are rising, right? Well, you're locked in at the lower rate. So you're in effect getting this imputed rent that whole time during the rising economy, whereas if you had like a perfectly flexible market, then you you would be seeing like a, a raise in rent every day that it happens, right? And that is uh, the haves are consuming but, more every every month, and the have-nots right. so, so are paying more the, every month. The stickiness kind of uh, I guess prevents some of the ability for. Um, uh, the the haves to claim all of the the rising level of of uh, wealth. That's interesting. And stickiness it, it, in real estate. So 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 
but but it's true in, in in a contrary sense too though like if you're locked into an employment contract in a rising market then you're you're uh, you have to forego raises in your wages um so so it does i guess cut uh, both ways in some degree but but uh i think i think um the the, 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 the when when you have the more the more that things are free flowing and dynamic and stuff you know I, I do think it privileges people with the best access to information to most efficiently arbitrage all these sort of opportunities and um uh the stickiness kind of slows that down right yeah, I think people with more information and people with more, I guess, resources can do more with it. I guess you talk about there's kind of let's look at, you know, Joe Blow working person uh, who and you look at inflation metrics. It's saying, hey, you know, life isn't more expensive for you. It's like, you know, college. You know, that's who cares about that? You know, healthcare, whatever. But, you know, it's like your basket of goods. It's the same thing. Your wage levels are, are, are growing as expected. You're really richer. And a lot of people say, well, that's not true. I'm not getting richer. But you look at people who are kind of outside of this basket, you know, sure, things are cheap in a lot of ways. But with their extra resources and money, they can, you know, invest in things that become monumentally more profitable. You talk about like VC. And also, and also, and also they don't have like uh, as much of a, of a fear uh, because like if, if – you know, you can't mortgage your house to, you know, chase the next bubble. Uh, if you, unless if you're a rational, kind of normally risk tolerant person, but uh, you know, if you are rich, you know that the, this money in your bank account is is not in the same category as like your your nest egg for retirement and your home and all that. Yeah, so. I mean, I mean, the the question is, you know, if there's really more money out there, if there's more dollars chasing the same number of apples, be that you have to pay, you know, you know, eight dollars and your money's you know worthless. Why why aren't we seeing this massive change in what uh in in, in what real prices are? And I think the answer is like you know. One theory, at least, is saying, okay, for most people, people are buying the same amount of apples, the same amount of money, but there's a lot more money being put into things outside of this whole market. There's a lot more money being thrown into higher education, a lot more money being thrown into VC funding of these equity, you know, equity being built up in, you know, unicorn tech companies. And, you know, this, you know, all this behavior is completely outside the purview of what the classical ideas are. Filling them back up again, kind of deal, right? So it's like new outlets for digging ditches and filling them up, and so the original stuff is the same price. But I, mean, I, I could, I could kind of, I could kind of see that. I think, I, I think um, that is part of it. Yeah, which I mean, um, I say like, is that a problem? I would say, you know, is it really a problem that people are investing in tech unicorns and and basically a lot of gambling at the high levels of 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 of, of this? I'd say maybe not, but the fact is, if you are expected to live the good life, you're expected to go to college or something like that, and and you know, of course, pay for your own health care, and people are their real wages are dropping as a result because to just make it what is considered to be this you know the standards of middle class living are becoming more expensive 
but their wages are keeping up with this fake CPI level that doesn't even include all that, much less living. Oh, so we, 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 have, we have more rapid abilities to adjust prices and to have an international market where, you know, people can speculate uh, on goods and if things seem too expensive or inexpensive, you know, they can swoop in and try to claim that, that arbitrage opportunity. And the uh, thing with like, like apples, right? Uh, you know, there's a real production cost to apples. And, you know, obviously once they're already produced and they're sitting in an in inventory, that's the time at which like the, the vagaries of the market can uh, come in and, and increase or reduce profits post-production, right? But ultimately speaking, in the long run, the production costs at minimum have to be uh, uh, paid back, including the opportunity costs. And if that doesn't occur, then there's just not going to be more production of apples. I mean, yes, apples are a natural uh, thing that they grow in the wild, for instance, but ultimately speaking, you know, as a consumer product, right, as a commodity, you pay for the picking. it requires some, some kind of, yes, uh, cultivation or picking or distributing or pack packaging or, or whatever it is processing so all of all of that has production costs those have to be met and you know the, the prices just can't stay far below the production costs for an indefinite period of time it, it, it at the end of the day needs to be uh, uh, re they need to recoup their costs so, so, uh, so uh, I guess that's that's one theory of of why you have an expand, expanding monetary supply, but no, uh, you know, rising CPI levels. Uh, do, do you have like other theories that like, maybe come to mind for why you why you aren't seeing the inflation that you know people like Peter Thiel are expecting to see? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I think just the 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 modern monetary kind of idea, the monetary realism kind of idea. Uh, is uh, a big a big part of it. I think I think really just understanding that in, the monetary expansion and price inflation are not necessarily linked, and that the assumptions that like the policies are as effective as they appear to be are really as effective. So so just because we set the the uh, interest rate on Fed funds at like zero point whatever, you know, that doesn't really mean that that's what you can, that, that, that it's going to set the entire uh, tone of everything. If really there is no uh, investment opportunities that are worth, uh, you know, that level of, uh, of, of, of interest. So, so basically the way it works, right. Uh, the financial intermediaries of the banks. Right, they they get those loans from the government uh, at the the Fed funds rate, and they try to make a, a profit by lending that out again to someone else at a higher rate. Right, but um, you know, if in a in a competitive marketplace, right, you're going to have it uh, appro approach the the general Fed Fed funds rate itself with some markup for opportunity costs. So it's, it can't be, so so it can't be wildly out of line with what they're getting the, those funds at, and and so they're only going to get those funds. They're only going to lend funds out 
if they feel like there's investment opportunities where that are only a slightly, you know, uh, higher interest rate, uh, uh, you know, where, where they could justify giving it out at only a slightly higher interest rate. So, so, so there's really not a lot of uh, investment opportunities that are going to be credit worthy enough to really justify lo- loaning out at that level. And then the overall level of lending is going to be what ju- uh, what determines the monetary level. And so if, if, we, if we understand that that's the main engine of, you know, the monetary expansion and contraction, then, then you know, I don't know why you would expect dramatic monetary expansion without seeing a dramatic expansion of creditworthy individuals at a very low interest rate who, who have a need and desire to use those funds for productive activities that will see them a return. Because, I mean, you can't all just splurge on TVs forever. And, and even if you could, you're not going to be credit worthy enough to justify an extremely low interest rate. Do you think there's a, a role in that for kind of saying, I guess, traditional models of saying investment opportunities are saying, by definition, investment opportunity is about production that will feed back into goods versus an investment opportunity, which could be profitable, but could be effectively rent-seeking. You know, if you're investing in previously existing real estate locations, that doesn't actually produce anything, but it can be very profitable. Right. So the the speculative frenzies are what you got to be worried about, because those do seem on paper, according to some models or whatever, to be really like credit-worthy thing. Like, oh, okay, Merrill Lynch has been making bank every time I give them a loan and they've paid it back with interest in a timely manner every time for the past five years, why would I not loan them again? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that seems like a fair assessment on the part of whoever is, is approving those loans. Um, but it, in, in fact, if like behind the scenes, it's all been subprime mortgages that are, have the flimsiest of evidence for, for thinking that they'll continue to rise, you know, that, that is, that is uh, uh, the problem, and th- and that's that's the kind of thing that you know when I said, for instance, that we're in a stock bubble, and why that's worrisome, you know, it, it can it can feel like all of the real production stuff is just fine, and uh, but but eventually speaking, when there's a a crisis big enough in the in the rent seeking part, it's going to start crowding out investment in real production, and eventually uh, the pr- real production comes to a halt. And people realize that the fake production is worth nothing, yeah. and you know, and then and then there's just no liquidity for anything, real or not real. Yeah, so I think I think maybe tying this all together, and I guess maybe what my takeaway is when you're talking about like the policy ineffectiveness proposition, it's at a certain level you can say that it's certainly not all about cyclical effects. You have to worry about real production and the fundamentals of the economy. And I think when you talk about you know the kind of uh, investment and production cycles, you also need to really you know, focus on the fact that you actually are having real production. And I, and I worry a lot that we're having a lot of kind of talk about growth and shrinking and the economy being bigger and shorter in the cycle and, you know, every boom or bust. But And that's all cyclical stuff. The, the amount of discussion I hear people talk about the fundamentals seem to be, seem to pale in comparison. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's that's one thing that that occurs to me. So uh, yeah. Any, any 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 final thoughts on 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 everything we we touched on today before we wrap up the show? Uh, well, uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, no, I just I just think that uh, uh, the the whoever gets chosen for the Fed, I I, I hope I hope they uh, uh, <laughs> are a sane individual. And I think uh, my emphasis sort of on that sort of middle ground approach on it. it you know, I, I don't want to understate the the effectiveness of monetary policy. I do think, for instance, like Paul Volk. Volker in the past, like those sorts of really bold sort of uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, monetary uh, policies can be very important. And I, and to be honest, I might I might even think we're we're at a point where we we might need something like that. So, yeah, hey, I mean, so. one, well, I guess one final point is, uh, you know, you know, f- folks who you know put a lot of weight in the ideas of Henry George to be very reform focused. But it's kind of worth talking about, too, like when you talk about administering the economy, we get to make sure not to underrate stability because you look at something like the Fed, yeah. that, that's, that's why they exist is stability. Stability yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. I, I, you know, you don't uh, – every time that, you know, historically speaking, you just sort of inject a lot of chaos and economic recession – uh, you know, you're gambling with the political future and the cultural future of your country, not just, you know, um, you know, minor like changing of the guards issues. Like, it's, you know, it's it, uh, OK, the economy gets worse and that makes Trump look bad and therefore that's good for the Democrats. That's not how you should think. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I, I very bad. I, mean, I think with so many things changing and so much that's kind of a lot of stresses, I think that there's going to you know, be disruption and a certain amount of chaos uh, at the all levels of the economy at some point. I just hope that it's being done by, I guess, people who are able to do the best they can the chaos. And I'm sure that uh, I really don't want Donald Trump to be at the helm <laughs> when uh, at, at the chaos. I'd rather have people who are a bit more... Uh, uh, you have a bit more wisdom and, and sanity, and yeah. yeah. I, guess, I guess I'm worried. I'm worried enough right now for that. That I think even in the fairly short term, we might have like a mid-cycle, you know, issue. Yeah. You know? So right now, I guess I'm kind of. Uh, I have a a neg- like everybody else is saying that the economy is great, and that's when I'm and that's when I'm like, okay, now it's time to worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, and even Schiller was like, "No, I'm still in the market," even though he was pointing out that we're near a peak. And it's like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, Schiller, you're letting me down. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. Thanks, thanks for being here today. This has been the Henry George Program uh, here on Case Issue Stanford.